0: You can reverse it. You can get a do-over. And that's the joy of, of what you're doing is, and, and what I'm doing is still trying to, in fact, teach people that, in fact, this is... It's all reversible. Well, a your lot family of reversible. Yeah. You don't have to live your family genes. The, whether you turn on those genes or not is what we've learned lifestyle does. And you're living the lifestyle and you're... in. It's it's wonderful that you're living the lifestyle that, in fact, is not having to follow a genetic pathway of disease.
1: It's a a lot of freedom for people once they realize that, I think. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. Thank you so much for joining me. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Hello to my Pursuing Health listeners. It's crazy to think that we are quickly approaching nine years and 300 episodes of the Pursuing Health podcast. This has been one of the most fun and rewarding endeavors of my life, and I'm not planning to stop anytime soon, but I thought it would be fun as we approach episode 300 to go back and revisit some of my all-time favorite episodes. Through this process, I have enjoyed meeting so many interesting people, hearing incredible stories, and connecting with all of you. So hopefully you will enjoy this episode and look forward to many more to come. Well, welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm really excited to be here with Dr. Mike Roizen, and thank you for welcoming me into your home, and Happy New Year. Thank you
0: for coming (laughs) here. Happy New Year. It's great to see you.
1: Yes, it's great to see you too. I was just thinking in preparation for this conversation about kind of when I first came to the Cleveland Clinic for med school in 2011 and how I remembered I didn't know too much about the Cleveland Clinic, but I remembered reading about all they were doing with wellness and some of the more proactive things in terms of employee health and thinking about how lucky I was to be learning in this environment where, you know, the institution really valued wellness and health. And then later on, I realized that that's really the career path I wanted to take as well. And so it's been Amazing to be able to learn in that environment and learn from you and everyone else at Cleveland Clinic.
0: Well, you've really modeled it, and you help and it's the the young people who help motivate us old people. <laughs> um, but I should I should just put in a plug for what we've done because yeah, um, wellness was tried to be killed for, um, if you will, three years in a row by the chief financial officer or that group at the because. It was a cost and not saving money, but now it saves. I don't know. We have avoided spending over six hundred and sixty million dollars.
1: That's one hundred and
0: eighty million. It it augments as you get healthier, which is what pursuing health is all about, right? right. Getting people healthier to stay healthy, and that's really six percent had what we call six plus two normals when we started in two thousand eight. It's now forty three point six percent of those who participate. So huge change, um, highest group in the that we can find in the nation, and that's why it's saving this year so much money. Yeah,
1: and that's so you're talking about the employee health program, which is, I think you know one of the, as far as the Cleveland Clinic goes, I think it was the first hospital, if not one of the first to ban smoking on campus it's to the first
0: large one to we we weren't the first to ban smoking on campus we were the first to really exclude it okay. um from our environment in okay. other words people had always said not inside the building and they were smoking within 20 feet of the building we okay. took over the the 16 by 5 block area and somewhere at all the other places we took over that policing of that so no place in the 16 by 5 block area. And we were really the first large one that didn't hire smokers.
1: Wow. And then it went even further to, you know, getting rid of sugar sweetened beverages to, you know, changing the food in the cafeteria, getting rid of ta- trans fats, which now a lot of other hospitals have followed suit and are, are doing that as well. But really...
0: It's, it's the law in the United States now. Yeah. So, 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 But anyway, but, but, but also the first one that we... Had free, um, if you will, uh, fitness centers for all of our employees, um, and give them a reward. So I say we've not spent six hundred and roughly seventy million dollars through two thousand seventeen. It's probably another hundred and fifty or hundred and seventy. We haven't done the calculations in two thousand eighteen. Wow. But in fact, in addition, the employees have had someplace over fifty million dollars in reduced premiums plus another. Ton of money they've saved in copays, etc, so it's giving back to the employees not only their health and fewer disability days, fewer sick days, but in addition real money. Um, if an employee works for the Cleveland Clinic and um, has a family of four and puts it in a four percent HSA for the 30 years they work, they end up with an extra two hundred thousand dollars at retirement so wow. there's a lot of benefit to it
1: that's a huge incentive so. Yeah, can you just explain for people listening how that works? So essentially, employees that are part of the employee health program, they can, you know, every year they have to meet certain... It's a
0: voluntary program. So if they meet six criteria, blood pressure under control, and uh, that's both determined by the primary care physician as well as the absolute 130 over 85 standard, LDL, LDL cholesterol, fasting blood sugar, waist size or waist for height or body mass index or body fat, you'd be under the scale, right? Um, the uh, no cotinine in the urine. And then when we've gotten done this with other places, stress management program completed. We we haven't brought that into the Cleveland Clinic as, a, as the sixth. The sixth is if they have asthma, have okay. it managed.
1: Okay. And cotinine is a measure of tobacco Right. Correct. Correct? Okay. correct. And then, you know, if you have employees who have chronic health conditions or they're not meeting those, you offer so many resources for them to be able to actively start improving their health.
0: Right. And so there's a, they get half of the benefit, actually, roughly half of the benefit if they are on a plan and are on their way to achieving their goals. So you don't have to get there um to get some of the rewards some of
1: the benefits you're still incentivizing the healthy behaviors right and even so, if you're not able to meet those markers right at right. this moment right
0: so i should say so the ceo and the board saved the wellness program and now they're everyone's happy including the the financial officer
1: right so it's hard i mean it is hard to see that from a financial perspective beforehand because you're not seeing the savings until later on it takes months and years in order to be able to see that.
0: Right. And we made a ton of mistakes in doing it, you know, as any new program. So one of the things that was interesting is we started with smoking, thinking we would get the fastest return. Well, smoking actually has the slowest return on money. It takes about five years before the program that helped them get off cigarettes is paid for by less medical expenses for that. Interesting. Um, and other... Parts of it, we've learned what it has the fastest return as well. So, which is stress management?
1: Stress management, okay. Which is a harder one to measure, probably.
0: Um, it, it actually isn't, although no? you, you'd think it was. But perceived stress is a pretty easy way of measuring it. If they complete a stress management program, that's what we look at. Because once people complete it, their stress levels go way down. It'll start to go. Down. There's so many ways of managing it.
1: Amazing. And I know that you've worked with other companies to try to implement similar programs. Do you think that this is something that could be implemented on a national level or that could be implemented and if not, why or what are some of the obstacles to making that happen?
0: So the obstacles are that it takes a little while to get the return on investment, but now look at the return on investments. It's huge.
1: Huge. Yeah.
0: So the answer is yeah, that's why I'm still at the Cleveland Clinic, because you get the the Cleveland Clinic gives you the opportunity to spread this to other places. So Portman, who's a Republican, and Wyden, who's a Democrat, have a bipartisan bill in Congress to do this with Medicare. Now it's not gone there, even though they've got three R's and three D's as co-sponsors, it's not gone anywhere because basically the Congress, if you will, Uh, sees if they bring up something like that, everyone will attach other things to it and not, it won't get the desired result. But we have moved a little bit along in getting a little rewards through the Medicare program. It's not done quite right to motivate it. My guess is over the next several years, we'll get to do this in several states, such as the state of Ohio and maybe uh, the state of Illinois and some parts of Tennessee have already spoken to us about doing this. And if, if we can get there and get there, both the buy-in and, and the buy-in of, of all of the contract parties, then we can really see if we can do this. And I, we have to do it because if we don't, medical costs are, you know, the number of people doing CrossFit programs and pursuing health that way is just not enough.
1: Right. We're going bankrupt our country without, with all of these medical costs. So. Correct. Well, that's exciting. And to think that, you know, if you can get a few more states involved and get more data and more buy-in, then hopefully more will follow suit. So right. that's yeah. very exciting.
0: Yeah, that's the goal.
1: Well, as so, you know,
0: as you know I, I try big, hairy, audacious goals.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's clearly working out. Actually, as I was looking through some of your many accomplishments preparing for this interview, I... I mean, it's kind of mind blowing the different things that you've accomplished and how many different almost careers you've had over the course of your life so far. And, you know, in anesthesia, and then even at one point as the dean of a medical school, but then you've kind of settled into this area of wellness in the recent years. And so I'm just curious, first, what brought you to medicine in the first place, and then how you ended up realizing the importance of wellness and kind of dedicating your life to that?
0: Yeah. So medicine in the first place is really easy. When I was nine, I felt like I was going to die. I had a strep throat or strep <laughs> strep infection and uh, a pediatrician came to the house, gave me a shot. I think it was streptomycin in that era or penicillin. Yeah. Um, and in a day I was feeling great. And I said, that's what I want to do in life. You can, you can yeah. get paid for helping people feel well. And so that changed it. When I got into anesthesia, I got, uh, this is a Somewhat of a funny story, but it's true. I got asked to be one year out of residency or out of fellowship. I got asked to chair or co chair the section on cardiovascular anesthesia at UC San Francisco. Okay. And the reason I did was because no one wanted to work with the surgeons. They were tough. Cardiac surgeons are fairly difficult to work with, at least in that era. Um, But all they cared about was outcome for their patients. And that was what I cared about. So I said, what determined outcome? And we, had, we got the database for the entire state of California. I was at UC San Francisco at the time, University of California, San Francisco. And it was age. So I said, the, more than BUN, more than any other medical factor, more than kidney function, brain function, anything else, it was the age of the patient. So the same patient undergoing aortic reconstruction who was 75, had three times the complication risk of dying who is 65 everything else being equal nine times of 55 so i said is there a chance of us trying to make people physiologically younger in the two weeks surrounding surgery wow and so that's where this started and it was trying to get people younger and motivate and and what you found is we knew the factors but no one had put them together, so that's how real age started. Wow um, and putting those together and And uh, along the way as you, as you, as you say, so you found out that aging was the key thing, and if you look at the data really carefully now, we're not sure, but we think that aging can be if we're slowing it now, we're doing what we call. Rejuvenation, meaning if you slow the rate of aging by physical activity, by food choices, by stress management, you can probably be thirty years younger than your calendar age at age fifty five so at age fifty five you can be functionally twenty five Wow, but we're undergoing there's a there's a real sense in the aging community the amount of money in aging research is now. Logarith- has now logarithmically expanded for about uh, 25 years and that's beginning to turn the concept of what aging is, the research is, to the point where maybe we can get much younger than our calendar ages. So we don't know whether you're going to be able to reverse or just keep it where it is. So that's where, I mean, that's how I got into the, the whole concept by, by looking at what is happening, what data we had, it is you You realize that the potential for human beings, for human capital, if you will, for us living healthier, longer, with less disability and a less medical cost is really there now.
1: That's amazing. And I actually, so I did the real age questionnaire this morning because I was curious, because I actually just had my 30th birthday, which was a big milestone for me and found out that my real age was 18, which is kind of exciting, but it also so you made see, me you're, think. You're,
0: you're, you know? So we should say, say to your husband that he's <laughs> rocking the cradle. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I don't know what his real age would probably be younger than that. Who knows? But so taking that survey made me think about a lot of different things and my own health behaviors. So when you put that together, when you think about helping someone, you know, decrease their kind of Biological age. What are some you can of the use most the term real age? Real age. They're real <laughs> age. What are what are the most important factors, or where do you start to get kind of the most bang for your buck?
0: So the two most important are stress, which is a thirty-two year effect. That is, wow, when you have three major life stresses in the same year, if you don't modify it, you're the equivalent in disability and death rate of thirty-two years older. The second one is food choices, from the worst to the best. That's about a 27-year effect. Third is, if you will, physical activity. And fourth is, is toxins in general, like okay. tobacco. Okay. But physical activity is, a, is one that people, um, in fact, this year, the Cleveland Clinic data is exactly confirms our data from whatever it was, 1999 when we first published it, that's about a 10-year effect and that is from being a couch potato to being getting not being the most fit but doing the minimum for maximum benefit in fitness. We don't have except for one data point the Cleveland Clinics this year. We don't have where intensity beyond that makes a difference, but this year the data is pretty good that it does, but it's only one study. So we we use four studies in humans, but the Cooper Clinic, the alumni data from Penn, from Harvard, our own Cleveland Clinic data, all show that getting to 11 MET capable when you're 55 gives you a 10-year benefit. Now, whether you get more benefit if you can do 15 or 16 METs or whatever, we don't know, except in one study where it gave you another two to three-year benefit. So it may be that the human body, we we just don't have enough data points on that, you know, waiting for people to age that that well after they get in in. Um, but it may be that intensity matters in addition. But anyway, it is it is it's those same things that we use on the outcome data for the six normals. Yeah. We didn't choose those randomly. We got those from the the Medicare we we the reason we have those is we looked at the Medicare database. And those made a difference to how long and how well people lived.
1: So when when it comes to physical activity, you talked a little bit about intensity, but can you talk about the importance of getting regular dedicated physical activity or exercise versus being active throughout the day or kind of like getting your steps versus doing 30 minutes of aerobic activity or strength training activity?
0: Yeah, we don't have real good data on that because you'd okay. have to randomly allocate people to those different groups to get it. But what we have is that if you look at any physical activity saying, what does walking, just walking do? 10,000 and 10,000 isn't more than 20% than 8,000. It's much more than that. 10,000 breaks down insulin resistance. Conversely, 12,000 steps a day doesn't get you much more than 10,000 in general activity because it is 10,000 that breaks down. It changes metabolic functioning. But in any case, um, walking gets you about 4.8 of the 10 years. Okay. So just by getting people off the couch, <clears throat> which is obviously a start for many people, gets you a huge benefit, gets you four years younger, five years younger. Mm-hmm. Then it is, the, the second thing it looked like was, Resistance activity, not because it gives you the biggest bang, but because if you do cardio without resistance, you tend to get injured. So the the resistance gives you about one sixth of the benefit, okay. and uh, three six go to a, or two, two to three six go to cardio that is intense exercise, and then there's an extra special benefit um, from jumping. And the reason for jumping, um, at 30, you won't appreciate this, but <laughs> the reason for jumping is in fact that it preserves, uh, it, it's the only thing we know that aggregates bone, hip and spine Okay. and somehow preserves discs. So you'd think the discs, if you jump, you would get, but they stay spongy. You know, it's it's almost like a muscle. It's that stress. Like mm-hmm. In your muscle, if you, if, as you do resistance, you tear it. And it's almost like it builds up over the next day and says, You can't tear me tomorrow. Right? Well, apparently the disc does the same thing and the bone does the same thing. It gets stimulated and says, I'm going to get stronger and spongier and stay uh functional longer. So there is a benefit to uh Some jumping fire and, and, and jumping. Yeah. And I don't you know, I used to play squash a lot and we used to do jump rope as a as a intense cardio exercise, yes. and so that's a great
1: exercise that's
0: still what I try and do,
1: yeah, oh, that's fantastic, and it makes sense what you say about the resistance exercise because we think about that even for preventing you know preventing injuries when you're doing cardio, but also preventing falls later on in life or hip fractures or things like that. The strength is so important
0: right, to pull yourself up from the fall, actually, right. the other thing, and just just so you as a as as a fun thing, if you want to see it. At the end of one of the Oz shows, I challenged Mehmet, Dr. Oz, to uh, jump rope. Ah. And they had to go to commercial. I was killing him so badly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll look that up. We'll link to that one at the end. Um, And then going back to stress, which you said was the most kind of important or could give you the biggest benefit, you talk about having big stressful events or experiencing stressful events in your life. And a lot of those, we don't have a lot of control over. So what are some of the things that we can do to buffer the impact of those events.
0: Yeah. So the event isn't what is stressful. It is your reaction to it. And the big stressful events, a marriage, forced to move, having a child, the the ones you'd expect, if you will. um, Those are major life events that change the way you perceive it. And the way you do it is is whether it is deep breathing or meditation or guided imagery or progressive muscle relaxation. There actually are 12 different techniques people do, but it's to find one of those techniques that you can do and practice it regularly. So I do deep breathing is mine. Um, And so doing it five minutes morning and night is a regular. And then, you know, someone cuts me off in a minor stress. I reach for my belly button and do deep breathing. (laughs) Um, But um, the and, and we can teach it easily. So we have an online program called Stress-Free Now. If you go to com, you can buy the program. It's about $50. Um, but it is, it goes through all 12 techniques and it's wonderful at helping people learn one of the techniques and practice
1: it. Definitely. And I actually, I did that program when I was in med school and we were working on the research project together, actually. So yes, it's a very good program, which is funny, we just as, as an aside about the way that we probably first met was when I was in medical school as part of our program, we all do a year of research and I was lucky enough to do mine studying a tool that you had made. To I,
0: I was lucky enough that you did it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank you. But um trying to study how we could collect information about patients, wellness behaviors in primary care, and then help to better direct them to the right resources in that primary care setting. And it was a very, A very interesting project and something that, you know, I'm still really interested in and trying to focus on how can we improve the delivery of primary care in order to focus on these more proactive behavioral interventions rather than the reactive prescribing of medications and and those sorts of things.
0: Yeah, so we we are doing, and I don't know if you're practicing in an area that we've started this, but in the e-coaching, I don't know if you've been I don't think we
1: have that in our... um, in but, our department, yet, yeah. Yeah, in
0: the, at are you, you're at the Cleveland Clinic?
1: I am. I'm at I'm in Lakewood. Um, yeah, so but we're in can, the residency program, so it's a little different.
0: Yeah, so all you have to do is on Epic, go to eCoach. Okay. Just put in eCoach and Epic and and primary care. Any oh. primary care patient can get it.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So I'll have to tell that to everyone in my program. It is in Lorraine and Avon. So, okay.
1: Oh, uh, it's in Avon. Yeah. Oh, well that's that's pretty close to our Yeah, to so Lakewood's that's what I'm so. saying.
0: So anyway, just check in, out. <laughs> in the orders, you just put in e-coach.
1: All right. E-coach, I, will, I think. I will spread that. But anyways, in terms of talking about things that we can do to improve our longevity or improve our real age, what are some of the things that you do or, you know, habits that you use on a regular basis in your day-to-day life and maybe how those have changed over the years?
0: So I'm smiling now because I do, there are 157 things you wow. can do that make a difference to how uh, fast you age or not. And I do 155 of them pretty well. Wow. The uh, And where, do, where would
1: people find out what this what these well, things you, are?
0: You took the real age test. So it's so, in there. Yeah, And so at the end, it okay. comes up with a extra things you can do. Okay. At at twelve years younger, at age thirty, you may not have had any <laughs> come up, but, but anyway. So there are hundred and fifty, and so they come up, and and you can choose what you want to do or not do. Okay. And there's a list of all of those things. Okay. But the two I don't do perfectly are manage stress and sleep. Okay. But everything else I do pretty well. So <laughs> I do do stress management. I do and and will will end we'll up get getting the wen way yeah. in into that program but it's not there yet. Yeah. I do uh food choices are pretty darn good. The uh I do all the four components of physical activity we just talked about. I don't smoke. Um, those are the big ones. I do take all the the supplements and medications that have been shown to make a difference in your rate of aging. Um so it, when it comes to it I I you know my blood pressure. You know, I'm, I'm,
1: you're, not well, you're, some wood. Well, tell people what is your I, I do real age and your. Chronological age.
0: So I'm I'm uh, 72 now, and I'm 52 real age. That's incredible. About 20 years younger. I'm a little more than 20 years younger.
1: That's amazing.
0: So anyway, but yeah. So
1: I want to I want to get into some more details about. So as far as your exercise routine, I know I've seen your treadmill desk before in your office. But what else? You go
0: right above here. I I offer that you have one at home too. (laughs) Well, it's not a treadmill. It's not. It's a regular treadmill. Okay. And and there's a a Schwinn bike. And set of weights. There you go. Um and a rowing machine. And so those are the things I so I don't know if you know, I played competitive squash and captain the US team in the
1: Wow. I did not know I did not read that Pan
0: American games. Anyway, amazing. um so the average um five game squash match was forty eight minutes. Okay. So I got in the habit of doing forty eight minutes of cardio three okay. times a week, um, even when I'm not playing squash, so that's what I do. So Wednesday evening, Saturday and Sunday, I do those. And when I'm on, you know, today is a, uh, a vacation day. And so every time I get a vacation day, I do it as well. Um, and then I do uh, weights twice a week. Okay. I do jump rope every morning. And I, uh, I don't go to bed other than last night without 10,000 steps. Wow. So, if you look at my, but now, well, you can see I've got sixteen thousand so far today. Already
1: today, wow!
0: And only, that's one of the few times the whole. But I just made ten thousand that day, so okay. um, I won't. I'll I'll try. I'll get ten thousand one way or another. Okay. Um, every day, and I might miss three days a year. So that's
1: that's consistency. <laughs>
0: yeah, so that's that's what I do for uh, for physical activity. Very good. Now. I promised myself that someday I'll get back to squash because I love the game. But if you're, as you probably will experience, if you're a competitive athlete, if you are not train do not have the time to train for it, you still try and do it competitively. Right. And it's, it, 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 it is, your body says <laughs> you're not right. ready for it. Right?
1: I've, yes, I'm starting to experience that myself. Yes, Definitely. It's a different type of training.
0: So w- even in, when I was dean at, at uh, SUNY Upstate, I would play with the Cornell squash team. I was still good enough to compete with a number one and two guy. But unfortunately, I didn't have time to compete with, right. you know, to keep in shape. So I'd come home after those matches on Saturday, and <laughs> my, my wife would think I was a need need an ambulance to get me to the next, you know. Right. You uh, exhaust whatever muscle reserve you have and and you...
1: You you, need a few days to recover.
0: Yes. So... That's that's an
1: interesting point though, too. And I think a lot of people listening can relate with the difference between short-term performance goals versus long-term health goals and how maybe you shifted. At some point, you gave up that competitive environment realizing, okay, I want to do exercise in a way... With my long-term health in mind,
0: right? But I, with the goal that that I am when I when I get enough time when yeah. I retire when I do whatever I'm
1: uh-huh.
0: uh, going to do in my next uh, phase <laughs> of life, to carve out enough time to to play to play competitively again. That's amazing. You know, so they have age groups, you know, and so yeah. you you can do that.
1: Oh, that's incredible! I will love to come watch that that would be great <laughs> so my
0: well, plate you know there's a there's a thing called metro squash um which is uh underprivileged uh kids being introduced to it as a way of inducing or introducing discipline and and so they invited me and i could i could stay with the best kid for seven points <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and then <I laughs> that's so pretty good <laughs> then i was exhausted you know?
1: <laughs> oh that's good. So you also mentioned you know stress is something that you could maybe do better at, but you do do some deep breathing, so what does that practice look like for you?
0: So, for me, it's just i I literally put my finger on my belly button so you can do it i I, I decided I had to do something that I could do with my eyes open because a lot of my stress is um and this started in california if you if you live in San Francisco and drive in San Francisco. You need something for stress <laughs> relief or the behavior. Yes. <laughs> and so I would put my finger on my belly button and just take practice Keep deep breathing. Practice. And sometimes I close my eyes and, and do it. But it's, normally it's just breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth. And, and, but concentrating on how your finger is moving. Your finger should move away from your body. Most athletes will do that. So I would think most people who are listening to this podcast will do that. That diaphragmatic breathing. But, yeah, but most humans, most yeah. Americans don't do it. Now, we all do it when we're born, but we don't do it. So it's just practicing that. And so, but it is, it's focusing so much on breathing that you can't focus on anything else.
1: And do you do that at other times of the day or just when you feel some no, stress I do coming do. I
0: do it morning and evening morning as and evening. a routine. Okay. Keep the practice up.
1: Got it. Got it. But it's it.
0: only five minutes. You know, it doesn't take Just very long. Thing. It's five minutes.
1: But it's the consistency again that helps you build that muscle, right?
0: I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> it, yes, it is the, that helps you build the practice so that you can pull it out when you need it. Right.
1: Yeah. You mentioned also taking some supplements and medications that have shown to improve longevity. Can you talk about what those are for? Yeah. Me?
0: So there are. I call it eight plus four plus two plus one. So okay. The reason there are eight where there's enough data in humans that it makes a difference to longevity, starting at certain times, there are four that are probable that have low risk. Okay. There are two where there's substantial risk, but there's probable benefit. And then there's uh, one coming along that we don't know how it will occur. Okay. But the FDA just approved it's now a year and a half ago the first studies on drugs with aging biomarkers. So meaning it's the FDA is set up to look at gastrointestinal drugs and gastrointestinal disease and the modification of it with drugs. They've never been set up to look at something like aging because aging. Mm-hmm. aging was never considered a disease. Right. But maybe it is a change and so They're studying uh, NADR and metformin are the two that are now under, if you will, IND in that area, at least as I understand it. But the the things that have been shown is simple things. So a multivitamin morning and evening, half of one morning and half of one in the evening. And if you look at the 10-year data, which the the headlines would show when you were in the beginning of medical school, throw away your vitamins, it's useful. Useless. But in the twenty-year data, it showed a twenty-five percent reduction in cardiovascular disease and a twenty percent or eighteen percent reduction in all-cause cancer mortality.
1: And is so, that better to split it up, morning and evening, or yeah, because you, you want to state benefits?
0: you that's a theoretic better. We, okay, no study has been done on it, and but the reason is because the water-soluble ones you will you will totally. urinate out in twelve to sixteen hours. You see that with a change in color in your right. urine. So that's why it's it's probable. but in any Got case, it. the twenty year data is done by the same investigators who did the ten year data, but it didn't get sensationalism because it was continue. Your multi you know, it's not a very, <laughs> not very exciting good headline. Yeah. The second one is vitamin D three or D two, D three. It's to get it to a level of fifty to eighty. The third is a is calcium and magnesium. The fourth is a baby aspirin morning and night. And that It's a time thing. So you're still in the period where you do extreme sports, if you will. So you don't want to do it if you're still doing extreme sports because aspirin increases bleeding risk if you have an accident. And you don't want to do it probably before 45 in in women or before 35 in men uh, based on the benefit risk of heart disease, stroke, and cancer. But it does all three of those. Anyway, and then DHA is for your brain. It's so if you don't have salmon or ocean trout, 900 milligrams of DHA a day. I think that was either five or six.
1: That sounds close, yeah. <laughs> um,
0: and then a probiotic and CoQ10. And the the CoQ10 and the and the statin are for people over the age of 50. So it's not. Now, it's for for those pursuing health when they hit 50.
1: (laughs) And 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 are those taken together, the CoQ10, with the statin, or would you just take the CoQ10 before?
0: So the, the point is that statins will reduce the blood level of coenzyme Q10, a key thing for energy. And where we looked at that, where we discovered that was actually an accident. We were, I had a bunch of executive health patients who would work out on a treadmill, and when you put them on a statin for the first time, yes. they couldn't do as much exercise afterwards. So if you added the CoQ ten, they can return to their former level of extreme competitiveness. <laughs> they it. were extreme, you know. I this was a group of patients I had who would say, "Can we, if we keep doing exercise at a very intense level, not have the decrement in maximum heart rate as we get older?" And so there are seven of them still doing this and not showing much decrement, no place near the 220 minus calendar age that guys are supposed to see. They're not seeing any, they're seeing 220 minus calendar age divided by two or something.
1: Minus their real age, maybe. (laughs) Yeah,
0: so that's right. Um, So they're they're seeing much less of a change. So that was in that group of what you would call crazy competitors, you know they'd come out of their their exercise stress test and lie to the next guy about how much they had done. So the next guy would would feel like he had to stay on it for longer and more intense. Oh,
1: wow. That's funny. Very good. Okay. Then I want to start getting into nutrition and I want to start talking about your new book, which is out now. It just came out today. Just came out. So what to eat when, and for those who are watching, we'll just hold it up here. Thank you. But... I want to talk about nutrition in general but also, you know, what to eat but also when to eat. So maybe we can talk about when first since that's more of the topic of the book, but it's been especially lately there's been tons of of coverage about fasting, intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding, all of these fasting mimicking diets. Lots of people are experimenting with it in different ways, but you went through all the research and the recent data and what did you find?
0: Right, so the the data support strongly that we should be eating more of our calories early in the day, less later. So the the phrase is one of our phrases: "Eat when the sun is out." Okay. So if you went in the. <laughs> uh, in the dining room here, you yeah. would have seen I have a a bunch of fake suns, or a bunch oh, of model suns to keep
1: the sun out. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's
0: to go on the, it's actually to go on TV programs oh, okay. that we're going to go on. You know, okay. as, as a, uh, prop, a prop, if you okay. will. So you want to eat when the sun is out, and if you need one of the things in in that lamp to eat with, you shouldn't be eating um, at that. time. It's an time. easy
1: way to think about it.
0: So the 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 data were accumulated over the last seven to 10 years in animals, but in the last two to three years. So one of the studies is in Spanish women who were trying to lose weight and they randomly allocated them since they have their biggest meal at lunch was to eat their biggest meal before 2 p.m. or after 3 p.m. And the group that ate before 2 p.m., same number of calories, lost 25% more weight. Um, lost a fat lot. as well. It's a significant. No, it's it's it. There were huge changes. The data from the Brigham and Women's uh, metabolic lab and how they get people to not see the outside, so they keep them in a room where they can't see the outside. Okay. They, they're each of their rooms. Yeah. They're allowed to do Netflix, but no time of day notices. Wow. So No TV, and they keep them there for twenty weeks. Wow. I mean, huge periods of time. And they showed that their metabolic rate is higher in the morning than in the afternoon. So the same calories that you eat in the morning where you're non-diabetic, you end up being pre-diabetic in the evening. And it made sense teleologically because after a hunt or gathering, you'd want to store food so you could survive until right. you could get more food or another successful hunt. So in the evening, you want to store food. In the morning, you use it for that hunt. And so teleologically, it makes sense. But it actually, there's a whole bunch of studies now in the last three years that show that eating more early and less later. So another one of our things is eat dinner for breakfast. So you can cook in the evening when most of us have more time, but eat it in the morning. Eat it in the morning. So that's the, the point. Now, the other thing that came out recently is... The best time to exercise for losing blood pressure, for lowering blood pressure, is in the evening. And why is that? It's probably because it's a way of increasing your metabolic rate and not gaining weight by exercising in the evening. Now, we always say to people, exercise whenever you feel like it so that you'll actually do the exercise. Because so few Americans do, so few of the people of the world do exercise. So... Um, do it whenever, but if you if you can do it any time, the evening is actually a way of increasing your metabolic rate if you're not going to eat the one way. But I think one of the things in the book is how to switch your eating pattern from evening eating to morning eating or to morning and lunch eating, and it's pretty easy. It turns out if you do it cold turkey, if you make it about four days, you lose your hunger because you're eating in the morning. But if you do it the gradual way that we show in the book, it's just as easy to do.
1: Pretty easy. Which is, I mean, it's interesting because you talk about how, you know, evolutionarily this made sense. But now the way that most people's lives are set up is completely the opposite. We have a lot of people skipping breakfast. We have a lot of people, you know, being busy at work all day and then coming home and eating a huge meal or eating more of their carbohydrates or desserts late in the evening, snacking before bedtime. Which is interesting to find out that really this is coming back to a kind of backfire.
0: Yeah, and that's it. May be you know when you look at it, although we're eating more calories ever since 1983, we ate the same number of calories from 1858 to 1990 to 1983, and then we started cultural changing to eat more. But in addition, we've gradually moved our our food to later in the day, and That later in the day is really a bad program. So not only now, I've got to tell you something else about the book. So in the beginning of the book, we have the the concept of what to eat when. That is, when is the best time to eat as well as what to eat. And you probably know, I mean, it's it's healthy fats, avoid simple sugars, simple carbs, um, added sugars, and foods with saturated fat, avoiding the foods with saturated fat is to avoid the proteins that come with saturated fat, carnitine, less than choline. But in the back, we have specifics of what to eat. For example, when you exercise exercise or what to eat if you're uh, trying to get pregnant or what to eat. I mean, all kinds of things. A lot of different situations. When you have hot flashes or what to eat. Um, you know, if you're on a first date or what to eat, you know, all oh, kinds of fun things. Very so good,
1: fun, practical, advice. yeah,
0: so that's so that that was those were the the fun things that actually had data on it,
1: very interesting. And it's interesting, too, just thinking about, you know, even when when so people are trying to do this intermittent fasting, it seems that most people I talk to tend to use their window later in the day versus earlier. And I don't know if it's just a result of, the way our lives are set up and being used to eating the big meal at dinner. But in fact, we can probably get a lot more benefit if we shift our window to be, like you say, eating dinner for breakfast, eating a larger lunch, which is also similar to the way we, you know, years ago, lunch used to be the biggest meal of the day. We just actually went to go visit my husband's family in Germany they live in a small town and they still do that. They have a huge meal together for lunchtime and then dinner is a lot lighter.
0: Yeah. So that's exactly right. It should be a lot lighter. But in fact, intermittent f- fasting does seem, or what I really—it's time restricted feeding—does work very well. Um, and the, if you will, the the fasting mimicking diet seems to work. Although we don't have long term data on it, but the meaning you want to get a period of at least twelve and hopefully fourteen hours. So I do it from seven a.m. to ten ten seven p.m. to ten a.m. Okay. So I try and cut off food at. 7 p.m. except for water and coffee, and then uh, not eat again till 10 a.m., and it works pretty easily, um, and it works even easily in a medical environment. Yeah,
1: definitely. Well, definitely because a medical environment, I was thinking too, is one of the harder times to do it. At least in my experience, I've seen a lot of doctors or, like you say, surgeons who work all day and then go home and eat a big meal for dinner because they're kind of working through lunch, or you have a lot of shift workers who are working in the evening, and so... I mean, do you have recommendations for that, for people who are working in the evening? Yeah. How can they try to maximize this effect?
0: So they should, in fact, keep on a normal sun, if you will, only eat when the sun is up. Okay. But essentially, they, they should be eating, if you will, before they go to work, they should eat their bigger meals and then have a very small meal when they get home before they go to sleep. So they, now we didn't, believe it or not, we wrote that. We wrote about 20 or 30 extra chapters that aren't in the book. The one on shift work, we allude to it, but we didn't include it in the book. And the reason is there wasn't enough data showing that okay. really worked. Um, so I'm going to try and rope in another learner student yeah. to help us with Look this, with our data. since we have nurses who yeah. uh, work, um, if you will,
1: during yeah. the night. Yeah.
0: So I'm gonna try and I'm tomorrow I'm I'm sending <laughs> off I've written it already, sending off a, a IRB proposal to um Kelly Hancock, our chief okay. of nursing, um, to say, can we get are, are you interested in doing so we'll take four words of night four words of nurses and shift them to the one way of eating and four keep on the same schedule and see if we can in fact lower the the um weight gain that, and the diseases that um shift workers have i mean it's a it's a real problem it's a
1: real problem, and it's something i th- I hope that people would be receptive to i think that's that's one of the biggest things that I overhear in the hospital in nursing units is nurses talking about whatever diet they're trying. I've hearing a lot about lately about the intermittent fasting or about the ketogenic diet or various things that people are trying, so it would be interesting to see what kind of data you can find out right
0: well there we have to create the data meaning right. we'll have to do the experiments right. with them because no one's done them
1: right you mentioned a little bit about what to eat so if
0: you're interested in joining in a new yeah, study, a new study.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> very interesting yeah so you talked a little bit about so for those what listening
0: Julie is great at both doing studies <laughs> and doing data analysis on <laughs> it. she did So don't give that that joy up.
1: (laughs) Right, right. I'm always looking for more research studies to do. (laughs) It has been harder to do in residency, that's for sure, but, but it's important to do. I think you need to do the study and have the data in order to be able to move forward. Right. You mentioned a little bit about what to eat. Can you give us an example of a day of your, what you would eat in a typical day?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I was worried that when you came here, you were <laughs> going to say, where are the salmon burgers? Cause I talk about, it. but I'll take you down. The freezer has just loaded with salmon, salmon burgers. burgers. But, okay. I, but I, I typically, in fact, today I had two salmon burgers for breakfast. Okay. So since it's a holiday and since we had a lot of grilled vegetables, I was debating actually a, Egg white um oh. with a lot of vegetables, so I, I will often do that on on a uh, Saturday or Sunday or holiday, right after exercise. So I've gotten used to exercising before I I eat, and then so I had a couple salmon burgers and some spinach. Okay, and then as soon as we're done, I'm going to. I think I'm going to have. Either a couple more salmon burgers, or I'm going to use some of the veggies and do an egg white vegetable omelet. That sounds and good. And then a dinner I'll have as a salad, a, a plain lettuce with, with some other, be- you know, tomatoes and set, and uh, balsamic vinegar and olive oil, and that's that's my dinner.
1: Okay.
0: Um. So that's a very. It may sound boring, but I love it, and it's a very it works. typical dinner. It's a Typical. I love typical it. day.
1: I also wanted to ask you yeah, about
0: if they ever find something that's <laughs> toxic in those salmon burgers. I'm in real trouble. You're in trouble.
1: Gets <laughs> <laughs> just getting the good quality salmon. That's about it. I also wanted to ask you about coffee because I know you're a big coffee drinker, and I know that we are constantly hearing about how coffee is good for you or how it may not be good for you. Can you yeah, give us an overview of the state of the data? Clear.
0: It's, 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 it's just like egg yolks. The data is really clear, and only people who are trying to sell books without real science would say otherwise. Other so um, the data is very clear. If you're a fast metabolizer of coffee, 82 to 88% of Americans are. Okay. How do you tell? You have a cup of coffee like this, regular roast, and if it's, this is 12 ounces. Okay. If you can have that in an hour without getting a headache, okay. gas, heart arrhythmias, abnormal heartbeats, gastric upset or anxiety, you're a fast metabolizer.
1: Okay. For fast know.
0: metabolizers, the more coffee you have, the better. <laughs> so six or more cups a day, you decrease Parkinson's risk and Alzheimer's risk by 40% or more. You decrease type 2 diabetes risk by about 25%. You decrease 11 cancers, including breast and probably prostate. We don't know that one yet, but breast and colon and et cetera by... Between twenty and forty percent. So the data is really good, uh, and and even if you've got Nash uh, non-alcoholic hepatitis, if you've got if you will a fatty liver disease, coffee helps protect against fibrosis. So it's probably one of the best foods. Now it turns out fifty percent of the benefit is from the caffeine, and fifty percent is from the polyphenols okay. that come with coffee. That is in the studies comparing decaffeinated with caffeinated, and these are all epidemiologic studies, so we don't have really perfect data on it, but it looks like half of the benefit is the caffeine and half is the. The the color, okay. the stuff that's colored in the coffee. Those
1: antioxidants. Interesting. So if you're a slow metabolizer, should you avoid coffee altogether? Yeah, or? the
0: slow metabolizers only get side effects.
1: Okay. So it's really not worth so it.
0: So for, for those 12 to 18% of Americans, yeah, if they're a slow metabolizer, people always say, well, what can I do? I'm a slow metabolizer. I say they do all the other 156 things. right? You know, because there's so many other things you can do. Right. But coffee is one of the the things you can do if you're a fast
1: metabolizer. Interesting. And do you know are there now genes that are associated with whether you're slow or fast? If you were to have genetic testing, or
0: yes, okay. but they're not perfect. Not perfect. So yeah, there there are it, it it's the CYP okay. uh, set of genes right. that that are associated with that. Okay. And so um, there are uh, genotypes you can do on uh, NutriGenomics, et cetera. But the uh, the easiest way is to try it.
1: Just that N of one experiment. Right. Figure out what you're... So an
0: N of one experiment for the for the people listening. Do you want to say what that is?
1: Basically doing an experiment with one variable on yourself and seeing what symptoms you have or what reaction you personally have. Because everyone, like we know, has very different genes and predispositions. And so when we do these big randomized controlled trials, you know, there's such variety in those populations of people that we're studying.
0: Right. So N of one is you're the N.
1: Yep. <laughs> you're the you're the one. <laughs> um, and then how? Do, say you're drinking six to eight cups of coffee per day. I am. How do you make sure? I know you said this was the other thing that you're working on, but how do you also make sure that that doesn't hinder sleep?
0: Usually, in fast metabolizers, uh, if you stop at six or seven yes. p.m., it doesn't. Okay. So, in fact, when I was on the FDA study section, this is the advisory committees. The head of the drug division at that time was a guy named Carl Peck, and he watched me drinking caffeinated, I was caffeinated beverages as well as coffee at that time. I've given up all beverages other than coffee now, coffee and water. And uh, he said, uh, you must have to get up at night to keep your level, to get another (laughs) caffeinated drink to keep your level stable.
1: stable. He was a,
0: he was into pharmacokinetics, okay. and and yeah. that and it was true. Yeah. I would have to get up in the when I got up in the wow. middle of the night, I would have to have uh, some <laughs> caffeine to, to be Help able to stay asleep. To <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. if so, I don't know that that's. I I usually stop around uh, seven or eight p.m. now.
1: Okay. Okay. Good. Well, I usually finish with three questions. We've kind of already touched on some of these, but I'd love to get your. Your answers maybe kind of to summarize and wrap up. So the first one is the three top three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health.
0: Um I'm, I'm gonna ask you these two because okay. cause people are probably interested. I've answered in
1: these before, but I don't know if I remember my answer. So they may have changed. <laughs> so
0: the best thing I did was choose my mate. So I've been married forty-six years, and wow. so having a supportive mate and Um, having that relationship and someone to fall back on is incredibly important. So that was number one and 10 times more important than everything else, probably. The second is I live, if you will, as close to the way I teach other people too. So I do stress management daily. I do physical exertion um, or at least stairs and walking daily and jumping and uh, I avoid toxins. So, And probably the third thing is I'm lucky enough to have a passion in life. You know, in other words, you probably can tell that getting people to change behavior to be healthier um, is a passion for me. And so I wouldn't still be working if it weren't for having that passion. So I think that's an important component. Okay. That. Your turn.
1: My turn. Oh, wow. Now I have to, I don't know. I want to just use yours. (laughs) I will say the mate or the people that you surround yourself with. I think that for me is incredibly important. And I would say we've only been married for three years, but I think I chose a very good mate as well. And then just trying to build those relationships and spend time with my family that those, because at the end of the day, those are kind of the most important things. And that's why, you know, why we want to help people be healthier and why we want to live longer is so that we can spend more time with our loved ones. So I would I would agree with that. I would also say that the sense of purpose for me has been very, very important. And it's something I've only been beginning to discover and has evolved over the past few years. Obviously, I am just starting out in my career, but that sense of purpose or feeling like you have a bigger purpose here in the world. For me, I have a strong faith. So connecting that with my faith is very important to me. Um, and then the third, to try to roll all of these things in one, um, I think that in the past, I think when I answered this before I said CrossFit, because to me, CrossFit involves functional movements, regular activity. It involves eating basically real food, not eating processed foods or sugar, and it involves community. Um, which again is, I think, very important to me. So, I guess I can try and roll some of those things into one, but it's hard to pick just three. <laughs> yeah, that's, it,
0: it is. No, you live. You you live a life of of purpose. So that's correct. I mean, it, it seems that way. To, that that to me, you live it.
1: That's what I so. try. That's what I try to do. But we're all constantly working and evolving. The next question is. One thing, which you kind of already answered this, one thing that you know would have a big impact on your health, but you struggle to implement. So you had mentioned stress and sleep. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more?
0: Well, it is when you're taking on a big, hairy, audacious project, that people, there are a lot of things you have to move to get those done. And sometimes you can't. So, for example, in our project, I couldn't guess... Uh, that implemented totally, even though I strongly believed in it. And you have to, if you will, push and keep pushing. So I think the stress is part of that uh, passion of changing things. And sleep is one where I used to love to stay up and watch the uh, daily show the comedy of the of the Daily Show. Yeah. So now I have now I play it the next day. <laughs> so I now I now try and go to bed an hour earlier. Okay. Because I I my wake up time is the same every day. Right. So I try and go to bed an, an hour earlier sleep. to try and get that extra sleep. So I'm pretty much uh, succeeded in. In doing that, thanks to uh, the apps, of play, playing the daily. <laughs> now that we
1: can watch TV. The anytime. Daily Show
0: the next day.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's good, and you bring up a good point.
0: And what about you?
1: Oh, for things that I'm working on, for me now it's definitely stress management. That's something that I'm really trying to work on. I do a pretty good job with sleep because I I just find I don't function well when I don't get enough sleep. But I've done some mindfulness and meditation practices. Right now, I'm doing a more of like a biofeedback where basically you're kind of watching your heart rate and trying to keep your heart rate in coherence as you're doing deep breathing exercises. I find that it's a little bit more objective and it it's something that I've been enjoying lately, but just being able to go back to that during the day and not letting myself get caught up in constantly worrying or thinking about things that I have to do or that I want to do and just being really in the moment, working on what I am working on at that time. So I'm sure it will be a lifelong challenge. <laughs> Great.
0: No, it always is. <laughs>
1: um, but you brought up a good point about the stress and kind of how that that balance between managing stress but also following your passions and your purpose and how all of these things balance is kind of important and you're gonna have to give and take. You can't do all one hundred and fifty seven things every single day probably if you wanna you know if you wanna still function, get enough sleep and do all those things. So it's finding the right balance, what works for you and what's best for your health long term. Last question is what does a healthy life look like to you?
0: If you're saying what will it look like 10 years from now, or what does it, there are different questions. Cause I strongly believe that if if the listeners make it, the the viewers, listeners, whatever we call them, make it to 2030, there's a ninety percent chance of a real breakthrough in aging research. So I think it's going to be different.
1: Interesting. You know,
0: if you look at medicine, and you were in in 1940, you would have never thought that blood pressure wasn't a major issue in killing people. You would have never thought we would have had coronary artery stents, or we would have had known a lot about the exercise, food, and even medications to prevent that. So, I really believe we're on this exponential cusp in in aging. So what it looks like today is trying to do as many of those things that make your real age younger and we'll constantly adapt to some of the studies. So if you will, the the data on eating earlier and time restricted feeding being useful were not there in the year two thousand where they're now there. So I I think of it it, you know, my concept is having the energy and capacity to follow your passions is what I look like as what I think of as a, a healthy life, and that involves a lot of things. And as you said, friends and and family are are key. But there's also, I think in ten in ten years, we don't know whether you're going to just be able to really stop the aging process or slow it dramatically. Or whether you're going to be able to reverse it. So I think it's going to be what, what a healthy life uh, looks like in 10 years may be very different from what it looks like now.
1: Oh, that's exciting. It'll be,
0: so it'll be very exciting to
1: see. We'll, hopefully we'll I'll be on your <laughs>
0: podcast in 10, 10 years. years. And we'll
1: be talking about it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I would agree. So my I always think about a healthy life as being able to carry out or do what you were put on this earth to do without your health being a hindrance or without having to worry about your health or your ability to function. Um, I think for me, especially now getting into primary care, just seeing how many people are so consumed on a day to day basis by their health problems. They're not able to do the things that they are really passionate about. It's very, um, it's sad to see. And I wish that we could help more people um, and well, m- many of those
0: are as as we started talking. Many of those are self inflicted. At the Cleveland Clinic, as I said, we've taken we've gone from six percent having six normals to forty three point I think it's forty three point nine percent or so. So that's you can reverse it. You can get a do over, and that's the joy of of what you're doing is and and what I'm doing is still trying to, in fact, teach people that. In fact, this is... It's all reversible. You're, well, a your lot family, of it is reversible. Yeah. You don't have to live your family genes. The, whether you turn on those genes or not is what we've learned lifestyle does. And you're living the lifestyle. And, you're, and it's, it's mm-hmm. wonderful that you're living the lifestyle that, in fact, is not having to follow a genetic pathway of disease.
1: It's a lot of, a lot of freedom for people once they realize that, I think.
0: Oh, that's a good one expression.
1: (laughs) Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. This has been awesome. And we'll have to do it again in 10 years, I guess. I hope so. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people.